Let's pray together, ask for God's help as we open the word. Father, thank you for the promises that fill this holy book, promises that date back to the beginning of time, where in our sin, as a human race, we needed the hope that there would be a rescuer. And so you promised that the offspring of the woman would enter the world and reverse the curse that our sin brought upon all mankind. As we were singing just a few moments ago, all creation groans at this moment. We affirmed it then and we affirm it now. And the tragedy is that it is because we are rebels. But how thankful we are that the Lord Jesus himself and he alone is worthy to take that scroll, that title deed of heaven, and break every one of the seals and claim all that is rightfully his. And that includes our personal salvation and destiny. How thankful we are that he is worthy. We sing his praises and bow before him by faith on this day, but we long for the day that we will see him as he is. We will be changed in an instant, and we will be forever with this Lord and Savior, this Redeemer and King. Jesus Christ is worthy, and we praise you. We ask, Spirit of God, that you would open our hearts and minds to receive your truth this morning. You would awaken our souls that are sleepy with cares and pressures of this world. Sometimes we feel as if we have been spiritually anesthetized to your truth, and sometimes it is because of our sin. Sometimes it is because we are under the control of our own passions and sinful desires rather than being under your control, but we pray that you would wake us today from that kind of spiritual stupor and not only invigorate our minds and our hearts, but mobilize our wills to follow you in obedience wherever you should lead, doing all that you ask of us so that we might experience the full blessing, the full reward that you have promised to those who follow you. I pray for those who are here today who are just wrung out, feeling that they have little to nothing left within themselves. They are perfectly positioned to receive from you. And we thank you for the promise that you have made to weary people like us, saying, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's your promise, and this is our need. So what a perfect match it is. Would you meet us where we are, Lord God, and fulfill this promise of rest? You've promised to provide. So for those who are worried and even fearful and anxious about how they will take care of financial responsibilities or perhaps a physical need that's on them, you are the provider. Your promise is that you will supply all of our need according to your riches and glory. So make good on that promise. Meet the needs. There are those here, Lord, who have needs they could never even express to another person, but they've poured out their hearts to you, draw near to them, speak to them, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're stepping away from the Gospel of Mark today, in part because Matt has the next portion, and as Kevin mentioned just a few moments ago, they... Uh, missed their connection. Well, their connection was canceled Friday night, so it was more than missing it. And the airline said, we have no seats available for the three of you until Sunday. And so we hope that they will be home today and eagerly expect that. I'm sorry that Matt is not here to preach for more than one reason, uh, but I'm also glad to uh, have this opportunity. And we're going to go to Hebrews 10 and 11 primarily, and we already read a portion of 12. I will tell you that I am, am persuaded or inclined to believe, I mean, I would never fight anybody to the death over this, but 
I do think that Hebrews is really written as one sermon. And I was listening to another preacher this week make that particular point, and he said, I did not take time to verify, but he said, you know, you could read Hebrews from start to finish in about 50 minutes, and that's about the length of a really good sermon, right? Some of you would say, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> so, Pastor Lloyd and others, we, we have scripture on our side that anything less than 50 minutes might not be long enough, right? I wish, and, and one of these days, I, we probably just need to do it and just open the Bible and just read the Word of God without any additional comment because every word is God-breathed. It's full of life. It's full of power. It's full of hope and help for us. And in some respects, to even appreciate the, the piece that we're going to pull out from Hebrews 11, you, you really need chapters 1 to 13. You need the... At, at least that portion, and there, there are a number of other Old Testament passages that inform this and a lot of history uh, that is helpful to understand, but there's still enough here for us, and I want to explore this with you today. So we're going to spend some time in, in Hebrews 11, and my prayer is that this will be a, a great help and encouragement and challenge to you, and as you can see from the title we want to look specifically at the power of God's promises and, and what they do in our lives. In Hebrews 10, verse 32, you read these words. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised." You know, if you were to Google deathbed regrets, you would find an interesting list of articles and ideas uh, from those who have either interviewed those who have been on their deathbed or thought long and hard, had some kind of experience uh, in that moment. And a lot of it has to do with, with living in a way now that we will not be at that particular point with regret, in particular that we would be remembered after we have died as having done things that were significant or having been people that are admirable. But I think that, that doesn't quite go far enough. It seems to be a little short-sighted because in a few of the articles that I read, none of them spoke about the reality that there is life beyond this world. It really seemed to just have a, a limited focus, and I actually agree with many of the wise pieces of advice that people would say, you know, live in such a way that when it comes your time to die, you have no regrets. And, you know, the classic example is no one on their deathbed says, I, I wish I had worked longer and harder at my job and avoided more people. It's usually the reverse, isn't it? All kinds of things that people feel at the end of their days. But you know, God's word begins with a similar presupposition. I mean, it actually has a lot to say about the way you and I live our lives and how we should live them intentionally and purposefully for things that truly matter. But it carries us far beyond. It doesn't stop with your deathbed. The word extends our thinking beyond this life and, and into the reality of the next one. And the realities in particular the potential rewards of the life that come of the life to come have bearing on the way we live our lives now. You see God through his word is saying far more to people like us than just live so you won't have any regrets. He's saying live now so you won't have regrets but also so that you'll enjoy rewards for all eternity. And I think many of us actually need to spend a little more time giving serious consideration to living in a way that will produce the kinds of rewards that God is offering us. Now, the portion we just read, I want to kind of take you back to the first century. 
And there, there are a few little lines here in Hebrews 10 that we need to just kind of understand the, the context of, of what is being said. Look at verse 34. The writer of Hebrews says, You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Can you imagine living in a point in history where just simply making a visit to a friend who had been in prison would cost you all of your personal property? That's what was happening in the first century. There was persecution underway, and some of those who the only crime they were guilty of was being a disciple of Jesus Christ, following Him with all their heart, proclaiming the gospel in the world, trying to bring others into that, that blessed knowledge of having your sins forgiven, of having the guarantee of eternal life. Just for following Christ, they suddenly find themselves in prison. And the persecution was so intense that even those who went to the prison to visit them, to care for them, to try to comfort them, would often pay a very dear price. And the writer of Hebrews is very aware of that, and he's actually trying to encourage these people because you can imagine the kind of pressure you'd be living under that if you said, you know what, I could lose everything, even the necessities of life today just because I'm a follower of Jesus. That's a different kind of pressure than what we as followers of Jesus are living with. And this book, one of its great purposes is to encourage believers who are daily in that Difficult tension of saying, you know, I, I want to follow Jesus and I believe with all my heart it's the right thing to do, but it's so costly. And one of the things that the writer of Hebrews does is to remind the believers that there are treasures and rewards and experiences yet to come that are of infinitely greater value than anything you could lay your hands on now or deposit into your bank account or treasure up in some safety vault on planet Earth. But then look at verse 35. He goes on to write, we read it just a moment ago, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Do you see how the view is not simply of what they're experiencing right now? Because what they're experiencing right now calls for endurance. It tempts them to throw away their confidence, their spiritual faith. And so the writer of Hebrews is, is throwing out a very important word. Now, in our culture, we use the word confidence and sometimes refer to this feeling or consciousness of one's powers or of reliance on one's circumstances. And if you're in a position where you say, I, I, I know what to do here. I've gone to school. I've gained the expertise through years of practice. I, I have the necessary experience to perform well in my job or in this particular class. Well, that would be an example of definition number one. You have this feeling, this sense of, of confidence in your power, your capacity. Or maybe it's the circumstances. You feel very comfortable in those circumstances or you just know it's all worked out and, and, and I'm safe at this point. I'm, I'm secure. That's a kind of confidence. But definition number two is, is interesting because it just simply says the quality or state of being certain. Now, certainty has to be founded on something, doesn't it? And that's where the writer of Hebrews takes us into chapter 11, and one of the very first things you encounter is that faith is the substance or foundation of things that are hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But even beneath that, even beneath your faith, there has to be something of of consequence, something of true substance, like a, like a concrete foundation that's poured under the footings of, of a building. And what the writer of Hebrews is about to explain is that underneath all of that is God. God in His perfect and great character and God in His perfect promises. And so what we want to do this morning is just walk through a couple of things with two different people from this great chapter of faith, this hall of faith as it is sometimes referred to, that you and I might also come to grips with the fact that God doesn't have a different plan for us in this age. He's calling you and me to live in light of His promises. We want to make Abraham and Sarah and Noah and 
all of these others who are mentioned in this chapter like super saints, put them into their own category, and we're kind of like, well, you know, maybe one day if things went really well and I could get my act together, you know, I could kind of move into the general neighborhood where these people live their Christian life. But that's not actually accurate. These are ordinary people, just like you, just like me. And God brought them to a point where they realized, my faith has to rest in something outside of my circumstances. My faith has to rest in something outside of something that that I can kind of gin up in myself. And when God revealed himself to them in his perfect character and his perfect promises, and they got a hold of what that really meant, it, it changed their lives. God's promises are better and his reward is greater than anything else in all the universe. And the promises are intended to move us to live our lives in a way that is different from those who don't know God personally, who are not committed to following him wherever they should lead. God is not simply trying to protect you from deathbed regrets. He is seeking to bring you into an experience of eternal rewards. And my prayer in the course of our study this morning, is that our vision of God would grow in clarity and depth so that as the, as the people we're about to study, you and I would be willing to do whatever he asks. And for some of you, that, mean, that will mean taking risky steps, moving, reorienting your career, reorienting your life. Now let's look at the ordinary life of ordinary Abraham and Sarah. So Hebrews 11 Go to verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city." The promises of God in the first place give us eternal perspective. It's the word of God and the promises that he loads into them that that cause you and me to think differently from the average person who is not in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because remember, most people are just thinking in terms of, I I have a limited number of days to live on planet earth and I want to make the most of them. And that's good up to the point. But the problem is it doesn't account for the fact that you're going to live somewhere forever. And so you not only need to live your days now so that you have no regrets in this lifetime, but that you might obtain rewards. And the promises of God are what what supercharge this kind of thinking so that you realize, I need an eternal perspective on my life. Now for Abraham, there's one specific way this is expressed and that God promises him a city. A little background on Abraham. He was 75 years old when God called him out of Ur, That is uh, a region that that you would know more along the lines of Iraq uh, and and that portion of, of geography. And God actually called him to leave the familiar surroundings and the permanent structures of life and family and business in Ur and travel almost 2,000 miles further west to a land that God would show him. And, and as we read through this portion, every time I'm just struck by the fact that God didn't fill in all the blanks. Many of you have relocated to Salt Lake City. Just, just for record's sake, how many of you are native-born Salt Lakers, or at least close enough? You may not claim Salt Lake, so. Okay, a handful. But the rest of us are transplants. 
And some of you know what it's like to move 2,000 miles. And you know all the uncertainty that goes with that. It's one thing when you say, well, that's where we're going to live, and that's where my job is waiting for me, and that's where the real estate agent you know, has been doing some homework, and we've got it either narrowed down or we already put an offer on the house, and that's where we're going to live. But can you imagine just loading up the, the moving van, the trailer, packing it all up and going, you know, kids, God has said we need to go west. We're just going to drive until God says stop, park it, unpack it and make a new life. That's kind of what Abraham was faced with. But God did promise him a city. Verse 9 says that he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Tents are temporary structures, even if you're a Bedouin. That's the whole point. You want a mobile house. And so tents are relatively easy. Fold up, roll up, pack up, move them, unfold them, pitch them again, pound in the tent pegs. It's all temporary, though. And so he's living in a temporary shelter. There might be a few of you here who, as an avid outdoorsman, would say, that's very appealing. I could see living in a tent the rest of my life but you're the exception, and it's actually kind of odd that you think that way. (laughs) Camping always has this, you know, kind of glorious appeal to me. I've grown up doing it, both camping and backpacking and all of that, and and, um, Kristen and I went uh, with the Ritters recently, had a a great time, high Uintas, it's magnificent, but I'm telling you, the second morning I woke up again on the ground, I I actually had this thought, why are we doing this? And my wife, who was sweet to go along, this is only one of a couple of backpacking trips that she has um, been brave enough to, to go with me. As we woke up and the, a little thunderstorm had, had rolled through, and I was listening to that rain, pitter-patter, thinking, well, we've got to pack up in this, and we are going home today, so we will be warm and dry at some point. Then the rain turned to snow. <laughs> and then enough light, you know, comes, and you can see this just kind of like accumulating, and I... And she actually said to me out loud, tell me again why we're doing this? <laughs> and I reminded her, because we saw stuff that very few people have seen. Trees, yeah. <laughs> what was so compelling to Abraham that he was willing to leave the familiar, the permanent, the established, and go. Verse 10 tells us, look at your Bible. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And that city is not being constructed on planet Earth. God's promises gave him an eternal perspective on this life to where he could turn loose of things that really were meaningful. I'm sure he had conversations with family members, as some of you have had, trying to explain why you're leaving. And remember, he also came from a family of idolaters. So he didn't come from a God-fearing family who just got it. Oh, great Jehovah spoke to you. God bless you. We're going to pray for you. We're going to contribute you know, to this great spiritual adventure you're on. I, I'm sure that he had questions, if not resistance, and it was hard for him. And he and Sarah probably even had moments where like, what are we doing? Oh. But that's right, we have the promise of God, of a city that he himself is building. So living in a temporary shelter, whether it be made of animal skins, as it likely would have been in Abraham's day, or nylon, or even prefabricated walls, or custom finishes, as we might enjoy in our day, it's just not a big deal when your eyes see the eternal dwelling place of God himself. And a hundred years from now, The house you're living in right now, the apartment, the townhome, the the double-wide, whatever it is, it's just not going to matter. 
So I ask, what is your forward look today? Because verse 10 says he was looking forward to the city. Do you have a forward look? Do you see beyond this life? Or are you simply just trying to live life well so that when, when your time comes to, to draw your last breath on your deathbed, you won't have regrets? You're not looking far enough. You've got to look beyond. Now, there's a second promise spoken of in this passage. God promised a son. Now, look at verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. I wish we had time to go back through Genesis 12 and Genesis 17 and look at some of the specific promises that God gave to Abraham and Sarah about how he would give them a son. Go back there later and, and read through those things. And then go to Galatians 3 where Paul actually fully explains that the real son that was in view there wasn't Isaac. It was actually Jesus Christ. So I want you to think even bigger than just Abraham and Sarah being blessed in their old age with a son. You need to think all the way to Jesus. You need to think all the way forward a couple of thousand years beyond that dear couple where God would send Jesus into the world. Now, the sweet testimony of Sarah is that having heard the promise, she considered him faithful. That is, she considered God to be trustworthy. Do you know God promises, and when he promises things, he cannot go back on them. If you go back to Hebrews 6, one of the things you'll find is that it just says straight up, he cannot lie. I've joked through the years that that little children's song that many of us grew up singing, God can do anything, 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 God can do anything but fail. We could add a few more things to that that God cannot do. He cannot lie. It's not even a possibility. If God actually lied or told, said something that was untrue, the universe would come apart at the seams. We would cease to exist. That's the consequence there. Hebrews 6 tells us he cannot swear by someone greater than himself. Now we know that he's the only God in the universe. Paul says to the Corinthians that even the false gods that many people worship, they're actually nothing. There's no reality behind that. So he's one of a kind. He's the greatest of all. He, he cannot lie. And here's Sarah, who knows some of that theology, takes this promise and says, if God said it, he's going to make good on it. So I can begin to live my life on the basis of that promise. God is faithful. Now, we know enough from Hebrews, and certainly go back to Genesis, and you can find even more about the story, but Sarah had no human reason to believe that she would ever be a mother. And at this particular point, she's past the time of childbearing. But she wasn't making a judgment on the basis of what she could see with her physical eyes or understand with her Middle Eastern mind. Everything around her said, don't believe this. This cannot be true. This is ridiculous. Why would God mock you in this way? Her body, verse 11 says, was past the age of childbearing. And then, I love the way verse 12 reads, and, and her husband, who was as good as dead. I mean, that's like a little humorous dig, if you will. Those are the realities, though, of the world that she is living in. Those are the circumstances that she faces. But she has the promise of God. And by faith, she received power to conceive a son because she judged God to be faithful. The promises of God are bigger than you and me and our immediate circumstances. Most of us want to live by this sight, don't we? What do I see in my bank account? What do I see happening in my career path? What do I see or hear with respect to my children or to my parents or my spouse? I mean, we, we tune in these physical senses as, as if they are the great interpreters of life. And the reality is that God is who he says he is and he does everything that he says he will do. And he's promising her a son. You know, we sometimes cannot see this kind of thing, and I'm sure that at that particular moment, Sarah wasn't connecting all the dots, but now she sees it, that God was actually going to bring Isaac into the world through her womb, by her husband's partnership in that conception, because God was intent on bringing Jesus into the world 41 generations later. 
And her role, even though her faith was probably weak at moments and, and mixed with doubts and fears and, and all kinds of things were taking place, but her, her perfect faith was not the critical thing. It was God's promise. Jesus Christ had to come, so Isaac had to come. And that meant she had to become a mother. The promises of God create an eternal vision that is bigger than the comfortable community and immediate circumstances that you and I live in. But the promises of God also establish an eternal identity. An identity that will carry you beyond your citizenship right here in this country, or if you happen to have citizenship from another nation on planet Earth, there's there's actually a greater citizenship. Look at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them, that is the things promised, from afar. They actually embraced these things. It sounds crazy, but here's what they're seeing. We are citizens of a heavenly country. That's what makes it easy to turn loose of Ur. When you suddenly realize, you know, the the place I was born and grew up and just felt like, well, this is home, it's not actually home. It's the place of your temporary residence. And when you begin to realize that as a follower of God, your citizenship is actually in a different realm, well, that begins to create all kinds of flexibility and even creativity with where you live right now, with how you live right now. But it actually narrows the focus of why you live your life right now. God is all about creating an eternal perspective and, and, and helping you understand your eternal identity because he has a great purpose for you and me to fulfill. So look at verse 13. Here are people living their entire lives in light of the promises of God, and they did not actually receive the reward in this lifetime, the thing that was promised. But verse 13 says that they acknowledged that they were strangers and aliens. These are some of the same terms that are much in the news today, aren't there? Even some who would say it's offensive if you use the term illegal alien. And I don't want to get into the whole political conversation uh, of who's right and who's wrong and whose view is best and what plan you know, we ought to be doing. What I want you to see is that our, our world is very aware of the migration of, of people, groups, and families, and how sometimes out of necessity you need to leave one place and, and move to another, and citizenship is important, there are rights that go with that, but we still can't treat people as if they're less than human, and I, there's so much of that that we all share, and we go, yep, 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 but has, there has to be a right way to do it, and some of that same terminology, though, never makes its way into the heart of Christians, Because we're so secure in our national identity, we're so secure in our national citizenship and the routines of the community that we're a part of, we don't think about the fact that in reality, we too are strangers and aliens on planet Earth. Don't let your driver's license or your passport confuse your spiritual vision. Don't let it sidetrack you and confuse you regarding your your spiritual identity. It's hard to think of yourself as actually being from another place. But you know, if you're a child of God and you've been born again, you're not actually from the physical place you were born. We have kind of the standing joke that when Kristen and I meet people and, and you know, inevitably for the first time people will say, well, where are you from? And I like to tell people I'm from Atlanta. And you know why? Because if you look at my birth certificate, that's what it says. Now, I only lived there about four and a half years. We moved to Alabama briefly, back to Atlanta, and then to South Carolina. And so from Kristen's perspective, I should tell people I'm from South Carolina because that's where I lived 45 of my 50 years before we moved out here, right? And I, and I see your point. But there's something in me though that wants to say I'm from Atlanta. But you know, when I was born again, God voided all of that. And he issued a new citizenship. The truth is, I'm not from here. That's what it means to be a stranger. And if you have been born again and you're following Jesus, you're from another place too. And the term alien doesn't have the Area 51 connotations. It just means a foreigner who's who's settled down, a resident alien, if you will. 
someone who is in a place intentionally, purposefully, probably gainfully employed making a life, but, but still not ultimately native. Do you see yourself as that way? God wants you to. And his promises are designed to give you this kind of eternal identity. Now let's read on. Uh, Look at verses 14 through 16. Speaking of Abraham and Sarah in particular, but others that are included, people who speak thus... And we actually haven't heard Abraham or Sarah say anything in this passage. So how are they speaking? They're speaking with their lives because they were willing to move from Ur to the land of promise that God would show them. She's willing to actually believe God that she will be a mother even though there's no human explanation or prospect of that. And it actually meant that Abraham and Sarah had to take a step of faith in that regard. So people who speak, that is voiced by their lives... These things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. So we're not talking about Ur in the case of Abraham and Sarah. Verse 16, as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And there it is again. The idea that there is something really substantial, something really glorious beyond this life. But let's read that in our context, all right? So you just insert your own name silently when we come to the appropriate places or even your own places of of birth or residency or whatever it is. But here's how it might read for us if we're really trying to understand the heart of Hebrews 11, 14 for us right now. For people who make choices and take actions like this in 2019 say with their lives and make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Now, if they had been thinking of Utah or Pennsylvania or Guam or Washington or Oregon or Colorado from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We are nomads from another place, foreigners who are only here on temporary assignment. And that means you and I should never feel totally comfortably at home. There ought to be just this little low-grade restlessness in your spirit that's like, yeah, I love where I am. Thankful God's given me this opportunity, but I'm not home yet. Are you living in a way that makes it clear, though, as these verses say, that make it clear you are seeking a homeland an eternal homeland, the heavenly homeland, the better country as it is described here, the city prepared by God. And it pushes us all the way back to this question, what is your life really about? Is it about family heritage? Is it about the family business? Is it about Ur? as it might have been for Abraham? Or are you, like he, willing to say there's a God whose word is true and his word is sure and his promises are great and there's actually eternal reward to live for? That's what my life is about. The money, the pleasure, the leisure, the good life, it's everywhere to be found around us. It just is, especially in a location like this. Several of us are, are, are newly moved here, still learning all, all the great places to go hiking and exploring and, yes, even backpacking in the snow and I mean, the national park scene and the winter sports and the summer recreation. I mean, it's just endless of what you can enjoy in this place. But there's more to our lives than just the next great trip, the next great outdoor experience, the next great adventure. 
Many people here in our state work in order to play. You, you sit next to some of them, cubicle just on the other side, and you know that tomorrow morning when you come back to work, you're going to hear about the great adventure they had this weekend. And there, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It's just a little short-sighted if that's what you live for. Because remember, we're all going to be sprawled out on a, on a deathbed one day, hoping we can look back on life and say, no regrets. But when you draw your last breath on that bed, you don't cease to exist. You're headed someplace. And it's either to the kind of glory and rewards that are being described here, or it's going to be a place of, of suffering, of a spiritual death, even though you won't cease to exist because you, you'll forfeit the eternal glory and reward. And that brings us to our last point. This passage is a reminder to us that there is eternal reward, and we've been touching on some of these things. I want you to go all the way to, to chapter 12 now, Hebrews 12. We began uh, reading through that chapter in the first three verses, but one of the things that uh, occurs to us as we study this portion of Scripture together that flows out of the eternal citizenship is that you actually get the city. And Hebrews 12.22 is trying to encourage the people of God to maintain this perspective. These things are true for us now, even though we're not there yet. So this is God promising. You, you already, you're as good as there, even though you don't see it, taste it, touch it, smell it, hear it in all of its glory. But verse 22 says, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And then he goes on to describe innumerable angels in festal gathering. We'll come back to this. So there is a glorious place that God is preparing for those who live life now by faith. And that citizenship that is never revoked doesn't come to an end. Here's the second thing, eternal relationship with God. Back in uh, Hebrews 11, 14 to 16, that last little phrase is just astonishing to me that people who live their lives this way, God himself says, I am not ashamed to be called your God. I really would expect that to go the other direction. That if we live our lives in a way, you know, where we demonstrate we're worthy of Him, that we could actually call Him our God. But He actually turns that thing around, and again, it shows His mercy and compassion. It shows His astonishing love for people like us that He says, I am your God. That's, that is the most personal and intimate kind of identification and possession God could put out there. It's akin to what he said to Moses when he was calling him. Remember that scene in Exodus 3? You should read that sometime, the whole burning bush and then the conversations that unfold after that. And one of the things that God says to Moses about this mission he's putting him on is that he will say to Israel when he identifies who he is and why he's coming there that the God of your father, that is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob is the one who is sending you. And God stands before Moses and he says, I'm the God of those people. And they are not perfect people. They did glorious things by faith, but every single one of them also failed in spectacular ways. Before the son of promise came to Sarah and Abraham, they concocted a human plan where Abraham would take the handmaid, Hagar, and raise up an offspring. But that was not God's plan. Isaac, he's not the dad he should be. He's not the father he should be. I mean, you read the story of Isaac, and there are things there that you say, wow. And then Jacob? Oh, my soul. You talk about dysfunctional family? Multiple wives, concubines, his household is a wreck. But God in his great mercy blessed the man. And like Isaac and Abraham before him, blessed ultimately because it was through them that God had said, I'm going to send the great son, Jesus. You know, when you are rightly connected to Jesus, all the junk about your life can be reordered and God can bring blessing where it's just chaos. And that eternal relationship with God is not something that we would ever arrogantly or presumptuously say, because I performed to this level, 
Of course God would claim me as his own. No, we sh- we'll be in awe of it for all eternity. But God himself says, you live by faith like this? It's not only that I'm not ashamed to be called your God, I delight to own you. And in the same way he says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. He's going to happily stand over you and me in that great day as we follow him and say, welcome to the city. I am the God of Danny. That makes me want to get on my knees right now because I know Danny and you know you. An eternal relationship that is intensely personal. There's a third thing, the eternal kingdom with Christ. If you go back to Hebrews 12 for a moment and we're done flipping pages here. But as he continues that scene of coming to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the holy or the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering, he says in verse 23, and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, that includes my mom and many other saints who've gone before us, are waiting for the rest of us to arrive. And then verse 24, we're now at the center of the city, center of heaven, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, a real quick explanation for this. Remember the story of Cain and Abel? Cain killed his brother, right? And when God confronts Cain and says, what have you done? The blood of your brother cries out from the ground. So what what kind of testimony was the blood of Abel speaking over his brother? You're a murderer. You're guilty. You deserve Death and the, the, whatever penalty God would assign. That's a fearful testimony to rise from the blood of an innocent one. Well, the blood of the innocent Christ that was shed on Calvary's cross has a different kind of testimony for those who come under its cleansing, forgiving, saving power. And the testimony that the blood of Christ that has been sprinkled upon the mercy seat of heaven, the testimony that, will, that it will cry forever is that these are the forgiven ones saved, reconciled, restored, brought into the household of God. And that's a testimony that can never be overturned. That's good hope for some of you who say, I am too bad for God to want me in his household. Oh, he, he had his son crucified. The perfect sacrifice made in order that you might be forgiven and cleansed of everything. Yes, ev- Everything. God's not asking you to make yourself worthy. You, you can't, and there, there is no one. We, we sang the lines of that beautiful new hymn. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone, this is not the right terminology, but the, the point of revelation where that's taken from, is anyone qualified to take that, the scroll, the title deed of eternity itself, and break the seven seals and, and claim what is recorded there. And the point is, the only one who's worthy is Jesus Christ. And that's because he was slain like a lamb, sacrificed. So even here in Hebrews, the climactic moment, finding the, the city center, if you will, is to find Jesus himself and to find that eternal testimony of salvation. And some of you need to begin to live under the power of this truth. And the writer of Hebrews goes on just a few verses beyond this in Hebrews 12, 28 and says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. There's future blessing and benefit waiting and there's present hope and security and peace and mission for us right now. I'm so glad that there will not be Democrats and Republicans in heaven. There won't be impeachment talks or processes. And, and there won't be the endless drivel and chatter from news networks. If that doesn't drive you to watch college football, I don't know what else will. <laughs> Citizenship that can never be taken away in a perfect place. A relationship with a perfect God that can never be overturned. A kingdom that is ruled by Christ and centered in Him that you will always be a part of. Those are the promises that begin to reshape 
your understanding of why you're living now, what you're living for, who you are living toward and for. That's the kind of, of vision that each of us needs to just take deep into our hearts and say, God, transform me. We go all the way back to Hebrews 10. What are you living for? Who are you living for? But in Hebrews 10, remember the strong word of exhortation because the, the now, the nasty now and now, as we sometimes say, it really does bring a lot of pressure on us. And some of you may even be standing at the crossroads of, am, am I going to continue in my faith in Jesus Christ or am I going to try to figure out a better way? And here's, here's God's word to you through Hebrews. Do not throw away your confidence. Why? Because it has great reward. And there's no other way of life that can offer you the kind of eternal reward that God is promising. You have need of endurance. Yes, right now, at this moment. And so you, you exercise your faith and say, Lord, I, I'm just struggling to believe right now. It's been so hard. But the pressure cooker's been so great. I just feel like, I, I don't even know if you're there. I don't know if you're hearing one of my prayers. But, but look at those words again. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, and what's God's will for you? Believe, obey, follow. You may receive what is promised. It's everything we just read of and a whole lot more. Don't throw it away. Persevere. The great stuff is coming. Let's pray together. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord, your, your word challenges us. It convicts us. Most of us actually have a very temporal vision for life right now. Please forgive us for thinking that life is about paying the next bill or figuring out the next step in a career path. getting our kids in a particular school or taking care of our, our vehicles, maybe upgrading something. I mean, those are necessary pieces of life, but they're not life, your life. You are the way, the truth, the life. How thankful we are for those who are walking by faith right now just saying moment by moment, day by day, Lord God, here I am. What do you want to do with me today? Who can I speak to in a way that would bless? Who can I share the gospel with? How can I work hard and save up a little extra so I can give something to a person who's in need? Thank you for those who, who think kingdom thoughts. But there are others here who, who really live a self-centered life for some, it's not because they have openly defied you. It, it's just they don't think about you. And we ask that you would forgive us for this and change our thinking so that you would be the great epicenter of our souls as you already are. We hope for great things and we anticipate great things and we thank you for your promises. And Lord, this world holds so little that we find attractive and encouraging. Many of us would say, take us to be with you. Do it now. But because you are who you are, your promises are great, your spirit dwells in us, we can also say with Paul, to live is an opportunity to know Christ and serve him. To die is gain. So it's win-win for us. Thank you. And thank you for the promises. Father, seal your word to our hearts and empower us to live in light of your truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.